Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. These people need to be treated like they should have for a long time. And when I think we treat our people with that respect and give them the balance to have a life outside, let them a chance to make some money, give them the flexibility, then I think our job of recruiting is not as hard. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. Do you want to spend 60 minutes planning out a profitable 2022 with me? Just you and me, on Zoom, camera on, pen and paper out, getting you super clear on exactly what your goals are and how you're going to achieve them. It's free, even though the call is worth like a gazillion dollars. Go to planwithjosh.com to book that call with me. That's planwithjosh.com to book a one-hour strategy session to make sure that 2022 is your most profitable year yet. Two years ago, I had an unbelievably clear vision of what success looked like for me and my restaurants. These days, the vision is just as clear, but completely different. Life and a global pandemic will do that, you know? Today, we chat with John Talashe of Specialty Restaurants Corporation, a company his father started and grew to 80 restaurants. Today, we talk about the evolution of that company over the years and the new course John has set for his family and his restaurants. So today, we have 17 locations, mostly California, Florida. We also operate in New York and Ohio. Back in the good old days, we were in 12 states. So right now, just four states. So it feels a little different. But a lot of what we're doing today is down in Florida, which is kind of ironic that that's where we're at. But we were in Florida back in 1972. So we've been in Florida for a long time. So we've had a long-term presence there. We started out in Long Beach in 1958. And LA has kind of been our home for a long time. We haven't opened a restaurant from the ground up, meaning a new site in a lot of years. So a lot of what we've done in LA has been remodels, taking these existing restaurants and kind of reinventing them. And so a lot of our time and energy goes towards the business that we have, which is event business. That's about 30% of our business pre-pandemic. And then, you know, dining and lounge business. Outside of the scope of having a bunch of restaurants around the country, we also have real estate over the years. Being a private company that we became, we took a little bit of what we made and started putting into non-restaurant assets. So when we talk of real estate, its majority is non-restaurant related properties that we own around the country. And then my dad was a World War II pilot and he had a love affair for old airplanes I call it a hobby in a way. He started collecting. And at one time, we had the largest collection of World War II aircraft, privately owned, uh, I think in the world, maybe in the country, definitely the country. And today we still own a B-17 that's flyable. 
It's out in Palm Springs now. It just flew out from New York. We have some other aircraft and museums, but majority of that business has become much smaller. And our core business is the restaurant business. And that's really what it's all about. At its biggest, you guys had what, close to 100 locations? At the peak, which was 1988, we had just over 80 restaurants operating. At that point, you know, he had opened and closed over 100 restaurants to get to that point. But at any one time, 88 was around the peak. And so you see it post-pandemic. You see it with a lot of big companies. But you guys have been doing it gradually for a while now, scaling back, refining, getting super focused. And you've also been in charge for quite some time now. So I'm sure you've helmed most of that focus. Can you talk to me about the ideas behind it? What led to that realization and what that process has been like? Yeah, for us, it really started, you think about the history of the company. My dad passed away in 2007 when he was operating and he was very entrepreneurial. And he really kind of kept one scorecard. And that was, are we making money or not? And everything was driven by that. And it was an easy scorecard to play by. It wasn't the best scorecard to play by, but it was easy to judge. And people came in and went based on that scorecard. And when he passed away, it took us, because there was a kind of a who moved my cheese moment for a lot of the people working there. They were being judged one way. And all of a sudden, I had a different outlook. And my family had a different outlook for the company. We wanted to be much more well-rounded. But you can't just let everybody go overnight. That's something that you have to transition. So it took many years to kind of regroup the team and bring in the right people and start changing things out. And it wasn't really until maybe kind of mid-2015, right around that time period, so quite a few years after he had passed, that we really felt that we had a team in place that we could really grow the company again and not just commit to doing what we wanted to do, but actually execute on it and fulfill it which was not always the case. It's easy to talk about stuff, but to really deliver on what you're committing to. And so for us, that was kind of the first thing. We spent a lot of time talking about what our values were and mission and stuff like that. But as we kind of led into that kind of mid period of time of the decade, things were starting to get really good. I think we had just finished up our best numbers right before the pandemic as a company. And we had a sense that we needed to rethink again. So about a year before the pandemic, we had sat down and rethought through our mission and values again. What did everybody really believe and what did we want to be living up to? Which ended up being an incredible situation because mission and values is something that you talk about. It's not always top of mind. We had spent so much time talking about it that it was top of mind. And all of a sudden, the world changed. And... It was easy for us to say, well, what's our mission? What's our values all about? And how does that all play? And we made a lot of decisions that didn't economically make a lot of sense, taking care of our employees and stuff, but it was exactly what our values were all about. And I think that's helped us out so much during the pandemic because those that kind of jumped to making financial decisions and not thinking about the people, I think paid the price. And probably are seeing that now with the, the great resignation going on. I think we've created a lot of credibility with our teams. And that's been a wonderful thing for us during this challenging time. It's almost like we were being told, okay, you've created this. Now we're going to hold you accountable to it and see how you do. 
you know, when you're younger, you look at your parents and, and if you're lucky enough to have great parents, and I certainly was, they're almost godlike. And then as you get older, as you become an adult, you become more of a human and they most certainly become more human as well. And I can't imagine that as you sit in this leadership position, you sit in the same office as your father. And when you look at his performance as the founder of the company, as someone that led the company for so long, what are the things you think he was exceptional at that helped to scale that company? And then what do you think you brought to the table that was a different skill set? I've never built a business from the ground up. And I think to build a business from the ground up, you probably have to outwork everybody else. And that was truly the centerpiece of my dad. He was going to outwork you and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. And he was just going to take that hill no matter what. And I think that was something that people really look to. The problem with that is that there's a lot of people standing around waiting for him to tell us what hill to take, as opposed to delegating that responsibility out. And I felt much more confidence in the team members that I didn't need to be that hero saying, hey, here's the hill to take. I could listen to others and get their input and share in that success. He created a huge company and we were really lucky for what he created. But he got to a point where you know it became too big for him because he was trying to do it all. And I could see his frustration in that. So I learned that you really need to trust your people, build a team around you, and that don't worry about having all the answers because if you have good people there, the answers will come. And I'm sure he was a huge mentor in your life, but I can't imagine that there weren't other mentors along the way. Yeah. In our business, unfortunately, everybody knew who signed the checks. So some really good people came and went because they realized that their success was going to be probably further down the road. And there's definitely some people that impacted my life that I could get a different perspective. My dad was large in my life, but I definitely looked to others to see how they thought differently about how they approach problems and issues. And yeah, there was some great people out there that definitely I would point to today that made me successful. What are the lessons you learned from those folks? I think I'd start with uh, interesting in my family is my uncle, who's my mom's brother, had an opportunity to come out and join the company and work for my dad. And he went off and started his own restaurants. And interesting enough, he put many of his restaurants on hillsides, hilltops next to our restaurants. <laughs> but he told me early on that the hours will eat you up. And you know, if you want to start a family, you're going to have to figure out how you get a balance in that. And my dad preached business comes first, family comes second. And my uncle preached, you don't have a business without your family. So you got to really think about how your family comes first. So it was always a conflict. And luckily, uh, I've been married over 31 years. I followed more my uncle's approach to that balance than running my family life in the ground. Talk to me about people and delegation. And the reason I ask is because it's one of the biggest hurdles in this industry especially as a small operator, which you have a tendency to do is delegate and then pull back, right? Delegate and pull back because either you give too much at once or you give just the right amount, but without enough clarity or it's not being done exactly the way you want it to be. Delegation experts will tell you that, you know, if you're going to delegate it, you need to get used to getting it done 80% of the way you would do it. But I also don't know if that's true or a recipe for success. And you've got a big operation. So can you talk to me about your philosophy on delegation? 
I think one of the keys to delegation is the people you delegate to are great communicators, meaning that they don't feel like, okay, it's now my responsibility. I have to go make it work. I can't come back and ask questions or talk about it. And I think one thing that really makes us as a successful team right now is we call it real talk. There's no surprises. Somebody makes a mistake, we put it out there, but we don't jump on that person. And as you delegate things, people are going to make mistakes and that's how they grow. And you want them to make mistakes, but you also want them to be able to reach out and say, hey, this maybe doesn't look right, or maybe I made a mistake and have that kind of conversation. So in our leadership team, that's a big part of our success is we aren't looking to make examples out of anybody. We're looking at solving problems and hopefully you can solve it on your own. But if you can't, we all want to step in and help and be there. And I think giving the confidence to the person to make mistakes, but also know that they can come back, I think helps them take on more responsibility. What are the mistakes? I used to ask this question a very specific way. I used to say, what are the mistakes and the hard lessons you've learned over the years? But I think a better question to ask is, what are the mistakes you make consistently? Because there are certain mistakes that I continue to make throughout my career consistently. What are those for you? Well, hopefully this doesn't sound bad because the toughest thing is probably hiring decisions. Those are things where you really believe in people. And sometimes you hire, I think, in your own image when the right person to hire is somebody totally different. And I think that's probably my biggest mistake is I become too trusting in somebody that probably somebody who brings a different type of energy, different background needs to be the person at the table to really kind of change the thinking that we have going on. And I think in the past, that's probably been my biggest mistake is hiring probably somebody I felt more comfortable with as opposed to somebody who's really going to challenge. Me too, John. (laughs) (laughs) Again and again and again. Talk to me about growth because growth means different things today than it meant 24 months ago. You know, somebody asked me two years ago, what's your life plan? It's to open the next restaurant and then the next and then the next. But growth is now a very dynamic word, especially in our industry. And so I'm curious to know, 24 months ago, what was your definition of growth for SRC and how has it changed and evolved post-pandemic? Well, the definition before was that we really wanted to grow. And we actually had a restaurant open in Florida, south of Tampa, about a week and a half prior to the pandemic kicking in and have three other locations that we hope to open over the next year. You know, each one we were working on right before the pandemic. And so you know, growth was going to be very important to us, mostly because we just felt like we had the right people in the right seats that could execute on that growth. Through this pandemic, those people have only become even more trustworthy in what they've accomplished and what they've done during these challenges. So growth for us, we're excited about growth. When I talk about growth, you know, it's really centered in Florida for us. That's where we have many of our growth teams because of the opportunities we see in Florida. We saw those, those opportunities before and Many of those opportunities are still there today, although it's gotten a hell of a lot more expensive to find great locations there. But I think that the pandemic has actually put more trust in our operators now than we had before that they can really get the job done. When I started my career in Los Angeles, I started in nightclubs, running nightclubs for other people. 
Then I opened my own bar in Hollywood because I thought to myself, how hard could that possibly be? And it certainly wasn't easy. And then, you know, for my sophomore effort, I decided to spin out a fine dining concept because I mean, how hard could it be to pivot into fine dining? And then my third effort was a fast casual concept. And so within 10 years, I was in all three tiers of dining and thriving, but the learning curve was extreme, John, and painful would be an understatement. So I have this broad understanding, right? But not a lot of depth because it's not like I opened 20 bars, 30 bars. And so I look at your career and your life experience and I say, man, you home the openings and the closings of a hundred restaurants. You know, a lot of shit, you know, like it is a lot of experience. And so I have no absolutes to offer when it comes to the bar industry or nightclubs or restaurants or fast casual concepts. But there must be universal truths that you were able to glean out of so many openings and so many closings. And we've had some pretty amazing locations that we've operated in. And when you sit in a location that the view is so spectacular, that can cover up some problems. And back in the day when we were opening, food and beverage was important, but nowhere near at the level it is today. So you could definitely cover up a lot of problems back then. You know, the restaurants we have open today, we typically had success because we put our best managers there and it was really the better teams. So I think the one thing you can just glean is that it's always your people. Your people are the ones that take care of the guests, take care of your employees. And no matter what you have going for you, if you don't have a great team in place, you really don't have anything. And my dad used to live by that. He used to say, find me a great manager and I'll turn around any restaurant because that person is going to show how much they care and really do what they need to do. And I'm a big believer of that. And in light of a labor crisis, I'm curious to know, how do you lure that talent these days? That's probably, obviously, it's a huge challenge. I think us who have been in the industry for a long time, if we went back and woke up 10 years later and it was today, and you asked people, you know, you're doing this, this, and this for your employees today, they would shake your head and just go, oh my gosh, you guys are just giving away the house. How do you make any money? I used to think about this all the time, that our industry is different. Our people, they're transitioning somewhere else. They're here for a period of time. They're moving on. Career is not really a thing. And I think that's changed a lot. I think we need to treat our people as if this is their career. And they're as professional as any other industry that's out there. And by doing so, they have to have all the benefits. Telling them to go hang out by the trash area and go smoke a cigarette. <laughs> That used to be common all the time. I can't imagine disrespecting an employee and saying, hey, go stand by the trash can and do something. Today, they need to have a work area and take a break in a nice area. These people need to be treated like they should have for a long time. And when I think we treat our people with that respect and give them the balance to have a life outside, let them a chance to make some money, give them the flexibility. And I think our job of recruiting is not as hard. And we've got some restaurants out there that are not having a difficult time recruiting. We're definitely having the challenges with the COVID outbreaks. And I say outbreaks, you know, just impacting people coming to work and stuff like that. But I think in terms of if you create that place that people want to work at, then people will come and work for you. I think that exists in our industry. 
unfortunately, we kind of lost sight of it. And a lot of people said, hey, maybe I can move on to somewhere else. But I think we're finding that there's some great operators out there creating some great environments to attract people. I agree with you. When I think about the industry high level, I've only looked at it from the mindset of an owner, an operator. But I mean, I was an employee at one point myself. And the conversation that's happening now, which I think is so important is, if somebody asked me, you know, do you think that hourly workers are reliable in the hospitality industry? And I would say largely, no. But I think that if you ask hourly employees, if restaurant owners and operators are reliable, the answer would be largely no. Your schedule depends on how much business I'm doing in a given service, which doesn't really give you as an employee a lot of confidence when it comes time to pay your rent every month. And it speaks to the difficult position that we're in, which I think everybody understands, but also the difficult position that they're in, which is, I think, what's ultimately led to the labor crisis on both sides. I mean, look, you're strongly seated in Los Angeles. How easy was it to get a dishwasher in 2018? Yeah. Nearly impossible. It's interesting when you go to our restaurants, we have in every store, we have two or three dishwashers have been with us for 10 years. Yeah. And then we have the next set of three that turn (laughs) over every month, every two weeks. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. There's the core group of people and then there's just huge turnover kind of outside of that. I was doing research for the interview and I saw this line that was talking about your father's love and prowess when it came to like the art of the deal, that your dad was great at getting a great deal. And it was something that you internalized as well. And the reason I want to talk about it is because my entire professional career, for the most part, has been peppered with really great deals and really bad deals. And the only consistent thing in those two areas is the fact that I agreed to all of those deals. And I think that as a restaurateur, our optimism at times gets the best of us. And we're willing to agree to poor lease terms. Or we're willing to let a contractor or a designer sell us into something that we probably can't afford. And so I'm curious to know, one, how do you define a good deal? And two, how do you go about getting one? Let me say one thing, because you mentioned my dad. Probably our greatest success, he was incredible at picking locations, but he was more incredible at tying up property for 40 years for very little money. Almost so much that we probably ran a couple of restaurants longer than we should have because the rent was so damn low, he wouldn't (laughs) give up the site, (laughs) which was kind of sad. But he taught me that you need patience and we probably could have opened maybe a couple more restaurants than we probably have if we had agreed to deals with landlords I get very nervous, especially right now on what landlords want. I think that it's pretty insane right now with what people are asking. To me, it just you have to be patient and you have to sweat the little details and you just have to go through it and you have to run the numbers and you have to know that you have enough cushion there if things do pull back. And most of our properties that we operate on are on city or municipal properties. So we're dealing with the you know, the municipal governments and stuff. And they're usually minimum rent versus a percentage rent. And he always believed that that minimum rent should be around 60% of what you think the percentage rent number is going to end up running. Because if you do have a downturn and you got to cut back, you got to have that cushion there. So I've tried to follow that approach. Unfortunately, 
I've got some landlords out there when the day came that the lease needed to be renegotiated, they felt that my dad had taken advantage of them and they, they wanted to get some payback there. So it's been tough holding on to some of these really great locations because of that. Uh, you know, definitely have to work out a mutually acceptable deal. As you look to expand to new locations, again, after so many openings, do you know what a winner looks like? And if so, what are the individual elements that you look for when deciding whether a deal is a good deal or not? So, you know, you kind of live in your own environment. And if somebody came to me and said, John, you got a million cars driving by the street corner, this is going to be a home run location for you. What I'm going to say is, well, what, what kind of view do we have? What is our guest experience going to look like? What are they going to look at when they're approaching the site? What's it going to feel like? And those elements have always played a huge role in every restaurant we've built from the day one and play a huge role every day going forward. So I look for locations that are difficult to replicate. I'm not worried about somebody coming in right across the street from me and opening up because I'm the guy who has the waterfront or the hillside location. There was a time that I was a little nervous that the city centers, people wanted to walk around, go park and be part of the city center. And I wondered how that was going to impact our world with these destinations. But what we found is that, you know, if you find an incredible location, especially with these waterfront sites that we have in Florida, people are just drawn to water. There's a certain romance to that that plays a huge role. But you can't just live off of that today. You've got to have incredible food, and incredible service too. And by having all three elements for us, if we can execute on the other two, I can get a great location and we're going to have a winner. Define success for me. As you look forward to 2022, 2023, how do you define success for both SRC and yourself? Well, I would say that what goes with SRC and myself is very similar during the pandemic, the one thing I learned is your team, your family, you know, as we're all sitting around March 20th, March 17th, 18th, sitting there saying, okay, now what do we do next? You know, a lot of fear, a lot of concern, anxiety, and then having employees that were out of work saying, hey, I can't get unemployment. Can you help me? I need food. This business became a people business to me. And the guests pretty much went away, but the employees, they were all there looking for answers and how can I help the business? They cared about the business. So to me, our focus has just been, how can we better the lives of our employees? How can we better the experiences for our guests? How can we better the community? And that's kind of a cornerstone of our mission statement. And we feel that when all those priorities are in place, and if you're achieving on each one, then you've got happy people coming to work. You've got guests that are excited about being there. I can go into a restaurant and I can feel that. And then my job, my happiness is so much better. I don't have to be the hero. There's not a crisis to have to be solved now. It's just we're doing what we're living our purpose, which is to take care of our employees, our guests, the community, our vendors. And that's the cornerstone of what we're doing. Everybody understands that. And we're not looking to have, uh, you know, it's a zero sum game. We want everybody to win. We don't want one group. And so emphasizing that across the board, we call it our five-star approach. Everybody's kind of caught up on five stars. We all get judged by it. And the guest tells us how we're doing, but 
our employees tell us how we're doing too. We don't want our employees to say, well, you guys got to give us three, but you got to deliver five on your guests. We want to deliver five on our employees. And then, you know, our vendors the same way. We want to treat them with the same amount of respect because when it comes to difficult times, we want them to think of us as a five-star client. So I think when you look at everybody the same way that we want everybody treated with respect at the same level. So that's where I see success. That's how we judge ourselves. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to share? I'm encouraged because I think if anything we've learned is that as an industry, every negative situation is an opportunity for a positive. And I think just seeing that as the next step in this very challenging time, many of us operators are reinventing ourselves. But I think at the core, we need to understand that we are in the people business, in the food business, and people have to eat. That's the great thing about it. And if we keep that in focus, you know, we're going to make it through all these challenges. That's John Talashay. For more on SRC, visit specialtyrestaurants.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.